welcome to Tuesday evening chapel. I understand it'll be 60 degrees Saturday. I didn't say here, it'll be 60 degrees. Someplace. Um, by the time we get to the end of the service, you're going to need a hymnal. Uh, there are extra rows of chairs in here left over from the concert on Friday. So those of you who are not sitting by a hymnal, if you'll come this way, you'll find a row where there are hymnals, okay? That'll, that'll help us. No, I said, no, 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 no. You, you can always tell how much influence you have by how little people move. It is our privilege to have um, Dr. Tim Stearman, pastor of Denver First Church of the Nazarene, with us this evening. He uh, slid down from, from Monument Pass, uh, made it in one piece. Um, more importantly, um, it is our privilege to have a brother in Christ with us. Uh, he will um, minister God's word to us, I think, in significant ways. The heavens declare the glory of God and the wonders of his works are displayed in the firmament. He's the famous one. Father, accept the amen of our hearts. Accept our praise. It's all that we have to offer. It's the best we can do. We thank you for accepting us for calling us, for enabling us, for equipping us, for challenging us to be yours and to be used by you. Let the amen echo not just now, but later and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, we pray. And use your servant and your word to accomplish your will in this place for your sake, we ask. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Nothing like springtime in the Rockies, huh? Just uh, keep thinking the day's going to come when it will be warm again. And I believe that it will. It's nice to see you this evening. And I know, at least I assume, you were here for classes. And it's nice of you to stay and be in this chapel time. Uh, if you have a Bible with you and you want to turn with me, you could turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 9, and I will read verses 7 through 12. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through me your days will be many and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. Abraham Lincoln was once asked if he thought God was on the side of the North during the Civil War. 
he responded by saying the real question is not whether God is on our side, but whether we are on God's side. More than a century later, that question is still relevant. And it's critical. As a child growing up in Sunday school, we used to sing one door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the Lord's side. On which side are you? You know, I'm looking out here and I'm thinking, most of you have never heard that song before. <laughs> that was when praise and worship was real praise and worship, you know. We, we've all worked at the task of making sure that God is on our side. And in the process of doing that, we have abandoned the holy God and created other gods who will more easily jump through our hoops and respond to our bidding. And I would submit to you tonight that those are not gods at all. But rather, what we create are idols. And we worship them as long as they produce for us. And the reason is because we don't really want God. We simply want His endorsement. We want His approval, but we don't necessarily want Him. A good example would be Tiger Woods. In the Masters tournament last year, on hole 16, he was chipping onto the green from off the edge. Chipped on, and I mean he, he, he hit the ball, it looked like, in totally the wrong direction. He hit it high on the green, but he had anticipated and calculated the, 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 the flow of that green to the point where he pitched the ball up, it bounced a few times, rolled a little bit, and then did a hard right turn and started rolling down that hill toward that cup. And everyone in the gallery just held their breath as that golf ball rolled closer and closer and closer and closer to the cup and it got right to the edge of the cup and it paused just for a moment and dropped in and the commentators said Tiger Woods just earned his forty million dollar endorsement from Nike because the little Nike swish was displayed so prevalently on that picture as that ball waited to drop into that cup. And I would submit to you that Nike could care less if it's Tiger Wood or who it is. They're not concerned about the person. They simply want the best golfer in the world to endorse their product. I want to talk to you tonight about three of the most popular deities in our religious culture. The first is the God of my cause. Our text says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It reminds me of my seventh grade year at Mayberry Junior High School in Wichita, Kansas. Suddenly all the sixth graders from Eureka Elementary were thrown together with other sixth graders who were now becoming seventh graders from a number of other elementary schools. Plus, there were those eighth and ninth graders, those upperclassmen that just kind of terrified you when you were the new kid coming in. And one of the great experiences for me was gym class. We went to gym class. We didn't have gym class in my elementary school. But when we got to junior high, we had gym class. And we had to wear these little khaki-colored shorts with a white tank top wife beater kind of undershirt. 
with our names printed across the front in magic marker. The coach would come along with the magic marker. What's your name? Stearman. Spell it for me. S-T-E-A-R. But my voice wasn't that low then. <laughs> S-T. And he would print it on my shirt. The problem was it was on my chest when I took the shirt off, you know. <laughs> Whatever the event or the assignment of the day in gym class, we started by lining up on that outer court line of the gym floor and choosing sides. And the finest athlete in the seventh grade was a boy by the name of Dale Troll. You always wanted Dale on your side. He could run faster. He could hit the ball farther. He could sink a basket with poise and grace. His presence on your team almost assured victory, whatever the game. The challenges that you and I face today are certainly greater and the stakes are certainly higher than they were when we were in seventh grade. But I don't know about you, I haven't grown out of the desire for a Dale on my side, whatever the circumstances might be, and I doubt that I'm alone. The bigger the problem, of course, the bigger the help needed. And God is the, the biggest help available. And so, naturally, God gets called in to lend almighty support to all kinds of causes. Now, that seems proper and fitting since the Bible teaches that God holds the world with concern, that he calls us to loose the bonds of injustice, to let the oppressed go free, to share our bread with the hungry. I mean, what could be more appropriate than seeking God's help with these things? In fact, God must be pleased. As long as a subtle shift does not take place. What can happen is this. That instead of serving God by working for a just cause, we attempt to serve a just cause by using God. And eventually, the cause pushes God aside and He becomes simply a useful means to an end. There are some examples. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, the YMCA. We throw the golden rings and bracelets of passionate concern into the fire and a golden calf appears to lead the way. And we begin to view God as simply an aid to fulfilling our own human aspirations. We assume then that God is the God of our cause. Whether it's youth or missions or Sunday school or music, you name it. We begin to assume that God is on our side. And we create a God who sees things the way we see things. We begin with a cause and we reconceive God according to our cause. Who God really is doesn't matter. What matters is, is, is finding an image of God that will be useful. And I submit to you tonight that any God, small g, any God pressed into the service of a particular cause will be a God too small to be much help. The second deity that we worship is the God of my understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. A little child goes to the beach and digs a hole in the sand. And with her bucket, she goes over to the ocean and begins to transfer the water from the ocean back over to that little hole. And we watch her and we smile as we realize that the day will come when she will mature beyond this attempt to try to put the ocean in this little hole. She'll understand that an ocean cannot be contained in a hole of any size that we're going to dig. And neither can God be contained 
even by our theological systems. We forget that only in Jesus Christ has there ever been an exact correspondence between God and humanity. And when we construct our theology, and we will, we will, we in essence work to imprison God within the structure that we have built. And we assume that God would feel very much at home there. And then it's just a very short step to believe that God would not feel at home anywhere else. When we've nailed down the last plank of our theological house, we may discover that the only God we have contained is too small to be worth the effort. In Acts chapter 7 it says, The Most High does not live in houses made by men. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will my resting place be? But there is a third deity that we worship. It is the God of our experience. Let me read it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Living Bible paraphrases that verse like this. For the reverence and fear of God are basic to all wisdom. Knowing God. Knowing God results in every other kind of understanding. Knowing God results in every other kind of understanding. I appreciate the way that verse is paraphrased in the Living Bible. Because it drives home to me the essence of the responsibility of knowing God and letting Him unveil these tapestries of knowledge and understanding that He has for me. But you see, we have a tendency to believe that our understanding or our experience results in knowing God. That's not what the Bible says. It says knowing God results in our understanding and our experience. We have it backwards. The things we experience because we experience them are naturally the things of which we are most certain. So, because I've experienced it, my form of worship and my style of prayer and my focus in service easily shape the pattern into which I squeeze spiritual reality because that's what I've experienced. Let me explain it this way. Two summers ago, my wife and my youngest daughter were out of town. And it was Father's Day weekend. I mean, think of it. My daughter's gone, but my oldest daughter was at home with me. And uh, wasn't married at the time, and, and uh, Father's Day weekend. And, and I heard that there was a, a Stearman fly-in. A Stearman is a bi-winged airplane built back in the 30s. If you've ever seen a movie with a double-winged airplane in it, it was probably a Stearman. King Kong was knocking Stearmans out of the sky. That's what he was doing. They were having a Stearman fly-in in St. Francis, Kansas, which is 170 miles almost due, due east of Denver. And I said, Stacy, why don't we go up there? Okay, we will. So we left on Friday evening, went up, got a room so we could be up early on Saturday morning and get out to the airfield and watch these bi-wing airplanes come in. And we watched them as they flew around. They looked like box kites in the sky, so fragile it seems. 
and they would circle the airport and then come in and land on a grass field. And we watched them for a while until we realized that two of the planes were giving rides. Rides. How much would that be? Fifty dollars, the man said. Well, give me two, I said. We'll both take a ride. Stacy went first. It, was a, it, it, it is a two-seater plane with the pilot in the back and the passenger in the front. No canopy, no windows, no reclining seat, no mid-flight refreshments. He took off down the runway with my daughter in the front of that plane. And he got up off of the runway and he started circling the, the field like he had. I'd watched him take some others on flights. But with my daughter, he didn't just circle the field. He took off south. I thought, where is he going? I could see that the plane was getting smaller and higher than he had been with the others. And as I watched him, suddenly he put that plane in a nosedive heading straight for the ground. And I'm thinking, my daughter is in that plane. As it came down, he apparently pulled back on the stick. That plane came up, did a complete loop-to-loop. -loop. He came out of the loop, went into two barrel rolls, circled the field, and came back in and landed that thing on that grass landing strip. I'm next. <laughs> I started walking toward the plane. My heart was in my throat. Stacy's walking from the plane toward me. We pass in the middle of the field. And as we pass, I didn't even look at her. I said, what did you say to him? She said, I just asked him to show me what it would do. <laughs> so I got in the plane, strapped myself in, put on one of those little doggy ear kind of helmets that I made out of canvas with the headphones in them so I could hear the pilot behind me, a little microphone in front of my, in front of my mouth. And I didn't say anything to him. I'm not having a conversation with this pilot. He takes off down the field. He took me up. We climbed to altitude. And I could feel it coming. He put that plane. I've got the stick right here. He told me not to touch it. I wasn't touching anything. I watched that stick move forward, which meant that plane was going into that nosedive that I had watched from the field earlier, and now he went into that nosedive. I mean, the planes fly about 80 miles an hour when they're really moving, but when you're going straight toward the earth, it feels like you're going about a thousand miles an hour, and the earth just keeps coming up at you, and he pulled back on that stick, and that plane did this loop-to-loop, -loop, and I'm holding on to my glasses and trying to keep myself together and he came out of the loop and went into two barrel rolls and turned a plane around and came in and bounced across that grass field and landed. So he taxied the plane up. I said, uh, uh, did I scream? <laughs> he said, not as loud as your daughter. <laughs> now, if you were to ask me if I've ever flown I would say yes. But that flight wasn't comfortable, it wasn't quiet, and it was not relaxing. But maybe when you flew, you rode on a 777 or a 747, some other great airship. And maybe something really neat happened and they said, you know what, sir, we're going to have to bump you up first class. We don't have any more seats in the coach. Man. You ever been in first class? Two or three times. Somehow I've, I've been fortunate enough to be there. I never bought a first class ticket in my life. But when you sit in first class, the seats are leather. And they're wide. 
for big boys like me, you know? And the armrests are like this wide instead of that little thing that sits between you and the person next to you in coach. And you're hardly even seated before they, they, they come back and they say, Sir, may we offer you anything to drink? Yes. I'll take a Diet Pepsi. Yes. They bring it to you in a real glass. We got into the air. They came back and said, Sir, uh, our uh, entrees today are steak or chicken. Which would you like? Well, give me steak. And they bring it to you on this tray with real little plates. It wasn't in that plastic clamshell box with the, 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 the bread that was hard and the, and the fruit that was dry. I mean, they brought it to me on a plate and on this tray there was a cloth napkin and real silverware and little tiny salt and pepper shakers. I could hardly hold them with my big hands, but they were just wonderful. Now that's the way to fly. We've both flown. But our experience in flying is vastly different. From me in that little box kite double-winged airplane to you in first class on a big 747. And we both assume that our experience is genuine, and it is. It's just not the only experience. So we divide ourselves along lines. Believing in God based on our experience and assuming that our experience is the only valid experience. And it becomes so easy to define authentic spirituality according to my particular experience and my expression of that experience. Listen, any God that I use to support my latest cause or who fits comfortably into my understanding or my experience will be a God no larger than me. And if that's the case, he will not be able to save me from my sin or inspire my worship or empower my service. Julius Hickerson, some of you may have heard of him. He was a promising young doctor. Could have enjoyed a comfortable life in the States. But he felt God's call in his life to be a missionary in Colombia, ministering there to souls as well as to the bodies of the people that he would minister to. Now his friends and associates thought he was crazy to leave behind a, a wonderful practice, and at times he himself must have wondered, when after two years he could point to no visible results of his labor. And his life and his ministry all really ended in tragedy as he was killed in a plane crash attempting to take some medical supplies to a remote village. But in the wreckage of that plane, some of the natives found this well-marked Bible and it was in their language and they began to read it and they told others about what they had read and before long they started these groups that were called churches the Southern Baptists unaware of what was taking place sent missionaries into that area and they got there and discovered that it was fully evangelized already and when the missionaries asked them how this had happened, the Colombians showed them a Bible, and on the inside of the cover was the name Julius Hickerson. The written word of God will not return empty. Sometimes in my position as a pastor, it is easy to get 
kind of full of myself and think, man, it all depends on me. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to take care of that responsibility. There's a verse of scripture in the living Bible again, the paraphrase. In Isaiah 55, verse 11, this verse takes so much pressure off. Listen to what it says. So also is my word. I send it out, and it always produces fruit. It shall accomplish all I want it to and prosper everywhere I send it. Did you hear what that said? His word always produces fruit. I may not be the one who enjoys the harvest, but it always produces fruit. Then it says, God speaking, it shall accomplish all I want it to. But God, it's not accomplishing all I want it to. It shall accomplish all I want it to and prosper everywhere I send it. Now I read that verse and as I look at it through my filters of my cause and my understanding and my experience, I look at that verse and I think, I don't understand that. I don't understand a lot of things about God. I don't understand why He doesn't miraculously heal everyone. I don't know why He doesn't make every church grow, just cause it to grow. I don't understand why He doesn't abolish cancer. But if I could understand that, then I could contain Him, and He would be a God of my own creation. 2,000 years ago, people thought they had God all figured out. Their sacrifice and their worship had grown stale. It had grown routine. But they thought, well, God doesn't really care as long as you keep up the ritual, right? Wrong. He stepped into the history of the world with power and glory by sending a baby who was born in a barn, would be crucified on a cross, and by doing so, God literally walked into our world. When he did that, whose theory did he obey? Whose theological system did he follow? No one's. I don't understand it, but if I understood it fully, would he be God? See, God is different than anything we could have imagined, and the biblical word for that difference is holy. And the thing that's happened in our world is that we have lost our concept of holy. Because we live in a profane world where nothing is sacred, we don't understand the concept of holy. The prophet Isaiah had a moment when he became aware. Again, I'm reading from the living paraphrase. The year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the temple was filled with his glory. Hovering about him were mighty six-winged angels of fire. With two of their wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. In a great antiphonal chorus they sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Listen, it was a moment in his life when he understood, when, when he realized the vastness of the holiness of God and came to grips with the fact that God was bigger than his cause, and bigger than his understanding, and bigger than his experience. 
And God is bigger than what's the matter. Bigger than my cause. Bigger than my understanding. Bigger than my experience. I'm glad he is. Because it causes me to continue to want to know him more. And that's what the writer of the Proverbs said. Knowing God is the beginning of understanding. He is majestic. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. In your hymnal, I'm not sure what page, there's the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. Let's sing that before we go. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity of being together tonight. I pray that you would help us as we seek to know you, that in that knowledge we would understand you better, not according to our own understanding, but according to an understanding that you would place upon our hearts and our minds. For our desire is to know you. As we go about our responsibilities now for the rest of this evening, I pray your blessing, your protection. Keep us in your care. In Jesus' name, amen.